Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for your uh, word here this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, to sit under uh, his word, uh, this word that tells us all about your love and your grace and your eternal plan in the redemption of the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray, Father, that this morning you would give us ears to hear. Uh, We pray that you would give us hearts that are humble. And we pray that you would give us faith to trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, will you please be seated? Well, uh, a few minutes ago, we uh, sang what is probably the most famous Christian hymn of all time, and that's, that's Amazing Grace. In fact, why don't you uh, flip back in your bulletins there to page 11, uh, where it's printed. Just look at the lyrics again. I know you know it well, but maybe just uh, look at those lyrics we just sang. It's a wonderful hymn. If you know, this year is actually the uh, 250th anniversary of this hymn. Uh, And as one one writer has commented, it's not often that a pop song in the charts can claim to have been around for 250 years. And John Noon's hymn, Amazing Grace, featured in hit parades all over the world in the 1960s and 70s, but was written for New Year's Day, 1773. And so perhaps an interesting question to ask uh, and think through at some point today is why? Uh, why has this hymn had such a lasting and universal appeal? 
You know, written all the way back on New Year's Day in 1773, and yet still sung all over the world on, on all different occasions. Well, to, to celebrate that 250th anniversary, a, a former professor of mine when I was at Regent College, a man by the name of Bruce Hindmarsh, uh, recently wrote a, a piece online identifying some, uh, some fun facts, if you will, about this hymn that, despite the hymn's familiarity, are largely unknown. So, for example, Hindmarsh notes that the Library of Congress has an amazing, amazing grace collection. It has a collection of more than 3,000 recorded performances of Amazing Grace by different musicians. Uh, he also notes that one of the verses of Amazing Grace was actually stolen. Uh, he says, quote, the original version of Amazing Grace had six verses, but in 1910, an enterprising hymn book publisher named Edwin Othello Excel replaced the last three verses with the one that begins, when we've been there 10,000 years. He took it from a hymn called Jerusalem, Our Happy Home, which had over 70 verses. I always laugh every time I think about that. 70 verses, can you imagine singing a hymn? I, I think I might lose interest after 40. Uh, Einmarsh notes, perhaps he thought no one would notice uh, if he borrowed it. Uh, another fun fact, uh, playing Amazing Grace on the bagpipes is a recent innovation. Uh, furthermore, we don't know the actual tune to Amazing Grace. Uh, not only that, but one of the, I would say, more profound facts about the hymn that Highmarsh points out uh, is that it became an African-American spiritual, even though, of course, it was written by a former slave trader, showing just how amazing God's grace really is to transform someone's life and use it for good for so many. Uh, here's uh, one, one more fun fact. Uh, amazing Grace is a paraphrase of the words of King David. Hindmarsh writes, when John Newton wrote Amazing Grace for a service on New Year's Day, 1773, it was to accompany a sermon on 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 to 17. It was published six years later under this same scripture reference as a heading. In this passage, King David responds in amazement to the prophet Nathan's announcement of God's promise to maintain David's line in his kingdom forever. David went before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is mine house that thou hast brought me hitherto? In other words, says Hindmarsh, David responded, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. David was a murderous, adulterous king who had found mercy and forgiveness. And now God promised he would extend his grace through David's descendants. This grace would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the greater son of David. And indeed, that's where we want to set our focus here this morning. Uh, we are returning to our study in the book of Hebrews today. And friends, my prayer for us as we do so is that we'll once again see just how amazing God's grace to us in Jesus really is. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the whole of the chapter here this morning, uh, all 13 verses of chapter 8. Now, we've uh, had a month off from looking at this letter, so let me just briefly remind us of where we are. Uh, the overarching theme of the letter, remember, is the, the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so the author began in the first two chapters by showing us how Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, he then proceeded to show us in chapters 3 and 4 how Jesus is superior to Moses, and then, from the end of chapter 4 onwards, he's been showing us how Jesus is superior to Aaron and to all of the old Levitical priests in the line of Aaron. And thus, in chapter 7, immediately before our passage here today, 
Uh, He was describing for us the high priestly work of Jesus on our behalf. Uh, That Jesus, unlike all the high priests before him, was perfect and sinless. And thus Jesus had no sins of his own for which his sacrifice was needed. And that in fact the the sacrifice Jesus made for us was himself. Uh, That on the cross Jesus offered up himself for our sins so that we could draw near to God. And this isn't a sacrifice that needs to be repeated but it was a sacrifice that Jesus made once for all. And so as we come now this morning to chapter 8, the writer of this letter draws together all that he's been saying as he emphasizes for us the point of all of this. Uh, Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Friends, we really do have such a high priest. Uh, This isn't just theory. Uh, This isn't just sort of some abstract theology that we're doing here. These aren't just hypotheticals. Uh, We really do have such a high priest. A high priest who has offered up his life for us. A high priest whose sacrifice is so perfect and so sufficient that it really does cover all of our sin really making it possible for us to draw near to the living God and have an eternal relationship with him who is perfectly holy and majestic. Uh, We really do have such a high priest. And so you see, this is what we must see and believe. We we must understand this because if we do, uh, it radically impacts our lives. And so the author here very helpfully draws everything to a a summary point and says, here's what you must understand and believe. In Jesus, we have such a high priest. That's the point of everything we're saying. And then, as he proceeds here in the rest of this chapter, he both repeats and expands upon some of the things that he's already been saying. And all along the way, the goal is to help us see just how excellent the ministry of Jesus is. And indeed, just how amazing God's grace really is. Okay, so we're going to take this in three points here this morning. First, uh, the author here wants us to see just how excellent a high priest Jesus is by where he's seated and what he's doing. Verses 1 to 3. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And so Jesus right now, we're told, is in the heavenly tabernacle, or the the heavenly tent, or or the sanctuary of God. He was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, but he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. Uh, God here, notice, who's who's described as the majesty. Uh, That tells us something about God, doesn't it? That he's so majestic, uh, he's so holy, he's so beautiful, that the Bible can simply refer to him as the majesty. You know, friends, when you you worship, make sure you're not worshiping some false idea of some small God that you've constructed in your own head. Uh, Make sure you're worshiping he who is the majesty. 
That's where Jesus is. And the fact that Jesus is seated there at the right hand of the throne of the majesty speaks to the exalted state that Jesus himself is in. Now, of course, Jesus is God, and so that throne of the majesty is his throne, uh, but the emphasis here is that he sits at the right hand of it. And, and my understanding of that imagery is that this idea of the right hand is an image that comes from the ancient world in which kings would uh, surround themselves with powerful people, and the most powerful and prestigious of whom would be at the king's right hand. And, and that's what the Bible here wants us to see about the excellence of Jesus. He's the superior high priest because of where he now sits. And he's the superior high priest because of what it is that he's now doing from that position where he now sits. We're told that he's a minister there in the holy places. Now, as verse 3 tells us, part of the very function of any high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so if Jesus is truly a high priest, he too will have something to offer. And indeed he does. Back in chapter 7, verse 27, we were told that Jesus offered up himself. And so as we, we think about what it is that Jesus is now doing as a high priest in the presence of God in the holy places of heaven, it's not that he continues to repeatedly offer up himself as a sacrifice that was done once and for all on the cross at Calvary. Rather, the ministry of Jesus is now perf- that he's now performing is to apply that once for all sacrifice for us as he intercedes for us in the presence of God. That's, that's what it means for him to be a minister in the holy places. And so again, the point of what we are saying is this. Jesus has been exalted in the very presence of the majestic God, where Christian friend, he's ministering on your behalf on the basis of the sacrifice of his life that he offered up for you at Calvary. And that's the wonderful point that we must see and believe. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've asked him to save you from the consequences of your sin, he really is your high priest. And this is where he is and what he's doing for you. And so listen, because that's true, uh, you never have any reason to doubt your standing before God. Uh, You never have any reason to doubt that your sins have been forgiven in Jesus. Every day you can tell yourself, we have such a high priest. And amazingly, Jesus is ours. And friends, think about what this this really means. Uh, Jesus is the eternal son of God who was born into this world, taking on human flesh. And and so think about what has happened now that he's returned to heaven. Uh, The Anglican pastor Philip Hughes summarizes this so well. He writes, Jesus' ascension was indeed a return to the glory from which he first descended, But it was a return with a difference. He left heaven as the Son of God. He returned both as Son of God and also by reason of the incarnation, Son of Man. He left as Lord. He returned both as Lord and also as minister on our behalf in the presence of the Father. He left as King. He returned both as king and also as high priest and intercessor for those who he is not ashamed to call his brethren. He left as sovereign. He returned also as savior. He who sustains the whole of creation is now also the pioneer and the guarantor of our redemption. And so friends, point number one, we need to see just how excellent a high priest Jesus is by where he's seated, 
and what he's now doing for us. Second, we need to see how excellent a high priest Jesus is by understanding the copies and shadows of the Old Testament. Remember that this is a letter addressed to Hebrew Christians. Now, that is, people who are Jewish by background, uh, who had accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah, but who are now wondering if maybe they should return to the old practices of the, uh, of the temple with all of its sacrifices and its priests and everything else. And so a key part of the argument in this letter is to show just how foolish and empty such a return would be. And thus, in order to demonstrate the excellence of Jesus' high priestly work in heaven, uh, the author here helps us to understand that the priests and sacrifices and, and tabernacle of the Old Testament were merely copies and shadows of the, the heavenly reality of Jesus' ministry. And so in verses four to six, a contrast is being made between an earthly ministry and a heavenly ministry. Look, look at verse four. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. And of course, the reason for that is because according to the law, he, he wouldn't be a priest. He wouldn't be able to. He's, he's not of the line of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He wouldn't be a priest if he was on earth. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, we'll, we'll see more of this imagery of copies and shadows when we get to chapter 9 in the next two weeks. But the point here is, is a significant one that highlights the excellence of Jesus' ministry. And, and not only that, but it's also a point that helps us to better understand uh, how to read the Old Testament and how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Because you see, what, what the Bible reveals here is that the tabernacle of the Old Testament was patterned off of heavenly realities. And thus it ultimately looked forward to the coming high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so the author here reminds us of God's instructions to Moses in the book of Exodus about how to build the tabernacle. Uh, remember, the, the tabernacle was that uh, tent-like structure uh, where God met with his people in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. And when God gave the instructions to Moses about not only the tabernacle, but also the priests and the sacrifices, remember that those were very detailed instructions. And in Exodus 25, God warned Moses that he must make everything according to the pattern that was shown him on the mountain where God revealed these things to him. And, and the word pattern here is significant because it means that the earthly tabernacle or tent was to be modeled after something else, uh, namely the, the heavenly tabernacle or, or tent, uh, the, the heavenly sanctuary of God, that, that heavenly throne room of God. And thus verse 2 speaks of Jesus now ministering in that true heavenly tent, a tent not made by the hands of men like Moses, but made by God himself. And so in contrast, verse four, the priests of old were merely serving a copy and shadow of heavenly things. 
And so again, that, that Old Testament tabernacle and the high priestly ministry that took place there was good, it was important. But in some sense, you see, it was just a replica of the real thing. It was just a shadow of the, the real substance that's to be found in heaven. Now, I don't think that means that we should then necessarily conceive of the heavenly tabernacle in, in those precise physical and, and spatial terms. I don't think that's the point. Rather, the point uh, of using this language of shadows and copies uh, is simply to tell us that the detailed plans and specifications for the tabernacle were meant to reflect deeper realities, uh, both the realities of heaven and then the substance of Jesus' high priestly ministry. Right? Like, like a shadow, it, 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 it captures something of the substance of the deeper reality that exists. Now, this is a very imperfect analogy, but maybe it will be helpful. Um, in our home for Christmas, <clears throat> Star Wars Legos were the big gift, especially for my boys, and uh, they, they take to those things very fast, and they put them together like that, and you think, I just bought that and spent a lot of money, and it's already done, and there's nothing left to do. <laughs> Um, but they build these great ships. They got X-Wings and TIE Fighters and all these other cool ships that are in the movies uh, from Star Wars. And, and when they're built, they look really good. But, but, but they're just replicas, right? They're just replicas of the real thing that's, that's in the movie, right? They're cool, but that's all they are. Well, sort of similarly, the Old Testament tabernacle is a replica. It's a, it's a replica of the real thing. And that real thing, again, it's the heavenly temple where Jesus now ministers on our behalf in the presence of the holy and majestic God. And by the way, if you want to try and shape your imagination in a biblical way of what that heavenly sanctuary is like, uh, maybe spend some time this afternoon reading uh, particularly Revelation 5 and 7 and the marvelous descriptions of the majestic throne of God that are given in those chapters. And so you see, the argument here is, why would you go back to the shadow? Right? The shadow is, is patterned off of the, the real heavenly thing, which is, which is then fulfilled in Jesus. And thus, we have a high priest who's actually ministering in heaven in the real thing. So stick with Jesus. It's, it's focused on him. He's the substance. He's the reality. And so that's the second point. Uh, we need to see how excellent a high priest Jesus is by understanding the copies and shadows of the Old Testament. Because when we do so, it then helps us to grasp the conclusion of verse 6, that Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old. Now, what exactly is that ministry? Well, it's the ministry of what we call the New Covenant. And that's our third point this morning. So third, we need to see how excellent a high priest Jesus is by the new covenant that he makes possible for us. Uh, again, verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And thus, if you skip down to verse 13, you can see the conclusion of the whole matter. In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the Bible tells us in Galatians 3 that the old covenant was mediated through Moses. Uh, well, Jesus here is described in verse 6 as the mediator of a new covenant. 
Uh, Or as John puts it in John 1, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, In other words, through Jesus, God has established a new covenant with his people, uh, of which you and I today as Christians are part. And, And Hebrews 8 is very clear that this new covenant is a more excellent covenant. Uh, Indeed, we're told that the first covenant was faulty, Uh, not because there was something bad about it. It it was originally an expression of God's kindness and grace towards his people in the Old Testament. But it was faulty in the sense that it couldn't bring about the kind of ultimate forgiveness and the kind of real inner transformation that God ultimately intended for his people. And thus, the new covenant comes with better promises, better promises that are made possible for us because of Jesus' high priestly work. And so to make this point that the old covenant was faulty and that the new covenant comes with better promises, uh, the author actually quotes from the Old Testament in verses 8 to 12 there. If you look at verses 8 to 12, uh, that's a quote from Jeremiah 31, which itself is speaking there of a new covenant to come. And so even in the old, there there was an expectation of something new and and something better. And thus again, the conclusion of the matter, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so the very fact that God spoke about a new covenant hundreds of years before Jesus was even born means that the the previous covenant was ultimately going to become old and obsolete. It was was no longer going to be needed. And and that's exactly what Jeremiah 31 conveys, a new and better covenant to come. Uh, Jeremiah 31 was written during a time of uh, deep despair in Israel. And it was a time of despair because the, the sin in Israel was so profound at the time. Uh, So much so, in fact, that Jeremiah could see little hope that the nation of Israel would ever truly live in fellowship with God. And yet it was precisely at that time that God revealed himself to Jeremiah, revealing that he would show himself to be the God of grace that he is, that he would make a new covenant with his people, a covenant that would fully and finally deal with their sin, a covenant that would would make them new, a covenant that would bring them into a, a close relationship with himself. And friends, this is precisely what God has done in and through the ministry of Jesus, our high priest. And as you read this quote here, you you can hear in it the the hope of what this new covenant made possible by Jesus would bring. Uh, Verse 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he very graciously entered into a covenant relationship with them. But the tragedy in the end was that so many of the people simply didn't want to be in a covenant relationship with God. They wanted to live life on their own terms apart from God. And so in the end, God ultimately gave them over to the hands of their enemies as an act of his judgment against their sin. And yet it's important to note that despite their sin and rebellion, God was never done with them, which is is exactly why through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised a new covenant and, and better days to come. 
A covenant that would be even better than the first. Again, a covenant with, with better promises. And indeed, verses 10 to 12 identify four different promises, okay? four different ways that this new covenant which Jesus has made possible for us is better. And Christian friends, before we look at those four promises, let me just, let me just underscore this for you because I really want you to experience the significance of this. Okay, th this covenant that God promised to Jeremiah that's described here in these verses, uh, this is the covenant that you and I are part of. This is the covenant that God has made with you on the basis of his grace to you in Jesus and his high priestly work. Okay, so here you have, Christian, a description of your relationship with God and of his amazing grace to you. Okay, for one, this new covenant that we're part of is better than the old covenant because it's internal, not merely external. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, those days of apostasy and rebellion, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, when God established that first covenant by giving his law to Moses, the, that law, of course, was uh, inscribed on stone. Now, that law was good. Uh, it taught God's people how to live like the redeemed people they, they were after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so, and so the law itself was good, but it was always external. And so, and so it didn't necessarily bring an, an inner power or, or an inner love by which to, to live the law out. And so it was, it was always there for God's people. It's sort of a, sort of a textbook code, but, but for so many of the people, it, it wasn't really the true desire of their heart. And so you see, something more radical was always needed. As sinful human beings, what we ultimately need is an inner transformation so that we can love and obey God's law. And that's precisely what we've been given through the high priestly work of Jesus. Uh, as we'll hear in chapter 9 next week, through the shedding of his blood, Jesus has purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Right, meaning that we've been made new creations in Christ. And thus, deep down inside every genuine Christian, there's a, a desire to please the Lord and to walk in his ways. And so, Christian friends, it's important we understand that the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus uh, doesn't eliminate the law in our lives. Right, grace, grace doesn't mean that we just go and do whatever we want now. No, the, the better promise of the new covenant is that God's law, far from it having no relevance in our lives, is actually written on our very heart and mind. And so, and so you see, grace actually produces what the law requires. And what the law requires is precisely what grace produces. Uh, as the old gospel sonnet goes, to run, to work, the law commands, the gospel gives me feet and hands. The one requires that I obey, the other does the power convey. The law commands all these things, and it's the gospel that gives me the power to obey those things. And so one of, the, one of the better promises of the new covenant is that it's internal, not merely external. It brings a real inner transformation to my heart and life. 
Uh, The new covenant is also better because of the promise of a personal relationship with God. Uh, Look at the end of verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that, of course, was a a common refrain of the old covenant. Uh, The problem, though, was that it it was rarely lived out among God's people. Because there was no inner transformation, many individual Israelites simply didn't live out the implications of this special relationship that God had offered them. And one of the reasons for that was because the old covenant was less personal and more national, meaning that it was primarily entered into corporately by the nation and not by individuals. And so there were many within the nation who simply didn't have this kind of living, personal relationship with God. And yet the new covenant is vastly different. Now, that doesn't mean that the new covenant is individualistic. Uh, It's not. It's still corporate. It's still about a people of God. But the difference is that it's entered into by individuals, not by nations. And so everyone within the new covenant has a personal relationship with God. Uh, Similarly, a third reason why the new covenant is more excellent than the old is because of the better promise of truly knowing God. Uh, Verse 11 And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, Again, because the new covenant is only entered into by individuals, it's true of every person in the new covenant that they know God. Uh, For those who who genuinely have Jesus as their high priest, they they know the Lord from from the least to the greatest. And so this isn't a promise only for the clergy or the pastors or for the spiritually elite. The the promise of the new covenant is that every person in the covenant will truly and personally know the Lord. It's a wonderful promise. And friends, as as I reflect on these wonderful promises of the new covenant, I wonder though, is it is it possible that maybe some of us are missing that which is better in the new covenant? You know, if if your primary focus and way of relating to God is focused on external rituals and regulations and just mere formal religion and not on an inner transformation which gives you a heart that truly knows God and truly loves him and lives in fellowship with him, well, then you see you're missing that which is better. Because the new covenant is all about a personal relationship with God in which we intimately know him. Christian friends, that's the wonderful promise that is made possible for you by Jesus. Well, fourth and finally, uh, the new covenant is more excellent than the old because of the better promise of complete eternal forgiveness of sins. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I want you to listen to this last, this last little phrase. And I will remember their sins no more. I mean, this, of course, is exactly what the old covenant could never provide to people. Uh, yes, they constantly offered sacrifices such as bulls and lambs and pigeons, but they were never able to enjoy any comprehensive sense of total forgiveness and pardon and peace with God. And the reason was because all of those sacrifices and that earthly tabernacle made by those Old Testament priests were just a shadowy picture of the better covenant to come. 
And so for those of us who truly know Jesus as our high priest, we've been completely, finally, fully, forever forgiven. Jesus has paid for every sin. He covers us perfectly with his righteousness. And so we now enjoy pardon for our sins, all of them. All of them, the sins of our nature. Open sins, secret sins, repeated sins, yesterday's sins, today's sins, tomorrow's sins, every sin, God has chosen not to remember our sins. He has chosen not to hold them against us ever. Is that not a better promise? Is that not a glorious promise? That's what our high priest has done. And it's what he continues to do as he applies his sacrifice to cover all our sin. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to enter into this covenant of God's grace in Jesus. This new covenant, this better covenant. This covenant which promises you inner transformation and the privilege of belonging to the God who created you and of having intimacy with him and of receiving complete and total forgiveness for every ugly thing you've ever done. Because friend, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He's the one who makes this possible for you through his death and resurrection and through his ongoing ministry at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And therefore, you see, to enter into this covenant, you don't have to, you don't have to go and clean yourself up first. And there are no conditions that you have to meet ahead of time. Because this covenant, it's not like a contract that we might think of in our world today. You know, a contract often involves two mutual parties coming to an agreement with each other and, and negotiating with each other until they come to some uh, mutually agreed conditions, which often take the form of, if you do this, then I'll do that. But that's not what this covenant is. It's a unilateral gift from God to anyone who will receive it. And friend, all you have to do to receive it is to ask Jesus to be your high priest so that you can be forgiven of your sin. God's covenant is a gift. It's his amazing grace to you if you'll receive it today. And Christian friends, let me remind you again that this is a description of the covenant relationship that you have with God. This is God's grace to you. And so it may be that what you need to do this morning is, is perhaps to renew your understanding of this covenant relationship. You know, sometimes married couples will come back and they'll, they'll renew their vows with each other every few, few years or so. Well, maybe you need to do something like that this morning with God. Uh, in the sense that maybe you need to hear once again the vows that God has made to you and the massive implications that they have for your life. Christian friends, because of Jesus' high priestly work, uh, God's commitment to you is for better or worse. It's for richer or poorer. It's in sickness and in health. And this covenant God makes with you, you see, it contains no conditions. Uh, there is no I will if you will. 
It is the unconditional self-giving of God to you in Jesus. This is the commitment God amazingly makes to us in the new covenant. His vows are not dependent on us. Over and over again, he simply says, this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my laws into their minds and on their hearts. I will be their God. I will make them my people. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. Those are God's vows. And though they're not conditional, because they're so wonderful and so amazing, to really hear them and believe them and receive them, you see, has massive implications for our lives. It's precisely because God has made this gracious covenant commitment to us that we now should want to respond with the whole of our lives to love him and honor him. That that kind of unconditional commitment of love is life-changing. To really be loved by God like that changes us. I mean, this is true in, in a marriage and a, and a wedding ceremony. Right? When two human beings, they stand up there, a man and a woman, and they, they, they make these vows to each other. To, to hear another person make vows that are not conditional, vows for better, for worse, sickness and health, to hear someone make that kind of commitment to you is life-changing. How much more so in this case where it's God making all the vows to us. And so maybe, Christian friend, you need to remind yourself and sit under those vows and receive them once again. At the beginning of the sermon, I I gave you several facts about John Noon's hymn, Amazing Grace. Let me give you one more as we close. I don't know if you know, but the, the original title of Amazing Grace wasn't actually Amazing Grace. It was originally entitled Faith's Review and Expectation. No, I'm serious. That's not a joke. And it sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's, it was really faith's review and expectation. Now, uh, what that original title admittedly lacks in pizzazz is made up for, I think, in what it's meant to convey. Uh, once again, quoting Bruce Heimarsh here, he notes that the, the reason it was initially titled Faith's Review and Expectation is because it was part of John Noon's own practice of self-examination. Uh, quote, it was written for New Year's Day as an exercise in looking back review and looking forward, expectation. The hymn looks back in faith at the many dangers, toils, and snares through which God's grace has sustained us. It also looks forward with confidence, knowing God's grace will be there as long as life endures. Well, friends, that's the confidence we have in the new covenant ministry of Jesus, our high priest, who sits enthroned not in some temple made by human hands, but in heaven itself at the right hand of the majesty. And so I end where I began. The point we are saying is this. We really do have such a high priest. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, we, we are overwhelmed by your grace to us. We thank you for all that you are to us and for us in Jesus. And would you set our our focus, our hearts, our lives completely on him. 
Would you help us to hear and to receive the better promises that you have made to us? Lord, help us to really believe and know that you are our God, that you have made us your people. Lord, would you work in us that we would bring you honor? Would you fill us with love for you that surpasses any other love we have in this world? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.